Tonight's scripture reading, another psalm about awe of God, is going to be Psalm 145 and comes from another of our leadership team members, Pastor Chris Bosniak of Pinesbrook Baptist in Walton. See you on Sunday. I look forward to being at your church this week. And he also serves in other roles, including coordinating our single adults serving Christ together ministry, and also a board member of our NSTM, where he's also a professor doing the upcoming class in Isaiah. Is this good? Are we on? All right. Psalm 145. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. A praise of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness, and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to you or to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. We have a three-part series with our main speaker, Mark Willie. You heard part one this afternoon. Tonight is part two. We have notes to go with that. If you raise your hand, we'll bring them right to you. If you were in the first session, you likely have this, but we have more copies as well. In our pre-conference that started the day for pastors and wives, uh, those of you who are there heard this story from Pastor Mark Willie. 
that when he graduated from Bible college, it was with the intention of going overseas to the mission field, planning a church. He received and took the advice to instead start a church here in the United States, in South Jersey. And the idea was he would do that as a proving ground and then progress to missions. Well, he's still there more than four decades later, a faithful shepherd in a needy area. That doesn't mean he neglected missions. It doesn't mean that at all. He has been a great and firm supporter of so many mission fields, many missionaries, and not just the men, but for their wives and their children, and he's left a great impact. He served on the board of the ABWE mission agency as well. So in many ways, he's done it all, and we're grateful for that. And tonight he returns for part two of the series, Using Awe of God to Overcome Fear. Thanks for being here, Mark. Thanks again, Brian. Good to be back with you guys. Uh, I invite you to take your Bibles tonight to Psalm 34. As we're going to continue our thoughts and return to a psalm that we kind of started with. We actually started with the inscription this morning, which really gives the backstory to what David is talking about in Psalm 34. And as you turn there, uh, I'd like to read Psalm 34, verses 1 through 11, as we dive in tonight. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 11. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then I'd like to conclude tonight with this verse. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Father, we gather again this evening. And God, we give you praise for just an incredible day. Thank you for the worship tonight. Thank you for the excitement of seeing another church brought into this remarkable network. Thank you for... The gift you've given Marion and I just to spend time with these brothers and sisters and see the, the beautiful thing you're doing up here in, in New York State and the, the true fellowship, the true heartbeat of pastors and wives and families and communities and churches that are joining together and just the encouragement it's been to us to be a part of it. And now, Lord, we want to hear from you. We want you to teach us about the fear of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned this morning, this afternoon, that Psalm 34, the context of it is a time when David is struggling with fear. 
Uh, we looked this afternoon at the fact that he was under the control of fear, that he was being crushed by fear, that fear, as the third thing fear always does in our lives, not only controlling, not only crushing, but invariably conning us. The controlling took away his strength. The crushing took away his hope. The conning took away his vision. And now we find David as he reflects in the first part of this psalm, and when he's really doing this is after he's escaped the events that we read about earlier today, Now he's in the wilderness, in a cave, and he's writing back, reflecting on that circumstance and saying, I didn't do anything right. God delivered me, but what I've learned is it's the awe of God that God wants to use in our lives to deliver us from fear. And he says, when I look back, I just see it wasn't my courage that got me out. It wasn't my strategic moves. It was God. And he says, he starts the passage there in verse 4, talking about how the Lord delivered him from those fearsome situations. But then he goes on, and four times in the remainder of the psalm, he uses the word fear of the fear of God. And as I mentioned this afternoon, it is the fear of God that displaces the fears of other things, as that passage in Isaiah talked about. I'd like to read it again to you tonight. And this is highlighting what he is telling us here, that fear is overcome by fear. The fear of God. The sense of, it, it starts with that fear which we think of negatively, that it's, a, 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 it's almost a, I'm afraid of God. Well, that, we start there. We start by understanding him as a God of cosmic, transcendent power, holiness, greatness, But the fear of God morphs into fear not only of God's attributes of greatness, but His attributes of goodness. It's why in Psalm 31, it says, I fear you for your forgiveness. And it morphs into this sense of all that God is, and and it moves from the sense of, I'm scared of God, to, I'm stunned by God. I'm awed by God. And that's why I think it is appropriate to not just hold on to the word fear, but to expand it, because I think it better expresses what the biblical writers are trying to say. It's not that we're scared of God or afraid of God. It's that God fills our gaze. He just stuns us with himself. And David is saying to us, it's that. When God fills your gaze... That the other fears dissipate in their influence. Their voices get softer. Their their hold is weakened. In Isaiah, the prophet had told us that fear, here's what he says in Isaiah 8, 12, and 13. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. So what does David mean when he says, fear the Lord, four times in Psalm 34? And honestly, what I'm going to do tonight, I'm not going to work verse by verse through Psalm 34, but in Dr. Vogel's uh, description, I'm going to do a topical exposition. I'm trying to sneak under his umbrella here. Um, 
Because I think that's exactly what this... We're going to look at what it means to fear the Lord and look at five, quick, five passages, try to unpack them quickly for us tonight, and we're going to look at five different provisions of God that He gives to awe us. Here in Isaiah, he tells us a little bit what this means. He says, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to regard as holy. You fear Him by regarding Him as holy, as set apart, as we know the word actually means, as unique, as spectacular. To fear God is not just to be afraid of Him. It is to see that He is stunning us with His greatness, His glory, His goodness. He fills your gaze. He becomes the controlling reality of one's life, the center to your thinking, your processing, your actions. He awes you. There are just over 100 times in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament combined, where God says, do not fear. Almost all of them are in narrative passages. They are talking to people that are scared. And in those circumstances where God says, do not fear, do not be afraid, in literally virtually everyone, it's actually 90-something times out of those 100 times, God says, do not fear, and then He gives a reason. Every one of those reasons is something about Himself. Every time God speaks to people and He wants them to not be afraid, He says, don't be afraid because of Me. Who I am, what I'm offering, the provision that I am giving to you. And what I'd like to do tonight is to present to you those five provisions of God that He gives to us to awe us. He did it, every, everyone I'm talking about tonight is in a passage where He starts by saying, do not fear. And then He says, here's why. Now, I'm just going to say this, and, and this is something we did at our church when I did a seminar on, on the fear of God. These cards, um, and I, I brought this probably enough for one per family if you want one. They're out there. They're basically fear not, and I have those, these five things, verses, and on the back of each one there are a number of other texts that give the same description. If you want them just to reflect on they're out there um, to grab on the table. Okay, five provisions of God that bring awe, that result in trust, and overcome fear. The first, God's strong aid. He says this in Isaiah chapter 41, 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God says, don't be afraid. I am here and my presence guarantees you this. I will strengthen you. God gives us internal aid. The word used here for being dismayed is literally the word meaning you're looking around. It's the picture, and if, if we had time to go through the historical context, the nation of Israel at this time is stunned with fear. They're looking all around. It's because of foreign powers and things that were going on. And, and he says, don't be dismayed. Don't be staggered with your, your what's going to happen next? What in the world's going to fall apart next in my, in my life? 
God says, don't be dismayed because I will strengthen you. This word is usually used in the Old Testament to refer to an inner strengthening. As a matter of fact, it's, it, it actually, in a negative sense, is used of somebody hardening their heart. It has the idea, in the positive sense, which he's using it here, as if he's saying, God is going to, he's going to stiffen up your backbone. He's going to give you an internal strength. Paul prayed this all the time for people that they would have internal strength. At Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the, mighty, as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms. I mentioned the verse in 1 Timothy this afternoon where it says, God has not given us the spirit of fear. The Spirit of God does not bring these, these fears of other things. Rather, He brings to us power and love and self-control. He brings to us a strength internally. He will enable you to love. When you fear, you are incapable of thinking of anybody but yourself at this moment. He gives a power to move forward when you feel crippled with fear. He gives strength he gives the power to have some order and control in your life when fear makes you feel like a blob of jelly and helplessness. He says God's Spirit does this. God brings strong aid internally. Remember, fear crushes. And it exhausts you as it weighs upon you. It's a con artist telling you you're trapped, you're hopeless, you're doomed, and you've got to work your way out. But God says, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to your fears? Or are you going to listen to me, the universe creating, almighty God who says, I will uphold you, I will strengthen you, I will help you. It's why in your own life, in your own ministry, when you're just looking at a, at a future that just looked, there's so much out there, I can hardly bear the thought that I've got to have this meeting. I, th there's these circumstances. I, I can't even look at the finances anymore. I've got this guy that is just eating my lunch and, and just constantly wearing me down with one concern, criticism after another. Where do you go? Well, you don't go where David went today when he was scared and take, I said, well, I'll take Goliath's sword. It's the wrong weapon. You don't run to Gath. It's the wrong place. You go to God. And you say, God, stun me with Yourself. Show me Your power. I can think of five different instances in my years of ministry where I was at the place where I was either going to get out of ministry or I was going to get more of God. And each time God just led me to covenant with Him, I would get out way before dark, get out of my car, and there's a certain place I would go. Initially, it was the back of the property that we had bought for our building. And I'd just sit at the back of that farm, and I'd just meet with God and say, God, I need Your bigness. I need Your strength. I don't know where this is going. I don't have it. And God says, I'll, I'll strengthen you. I will strengthen you. I'll do it inside. But secondly, he says this, I will strengthen you. I will help you. 
here in Isaiah. This is actually a term that is usually used of military aid in the Old Testament. He's literally saying, I will fight for you. The Israelite came, of course, to the land of promise. And they came and they saw these freakishly tall, scary-looking people with dramatically high walls. They were the Anakites, the giants of the day. Of course, as they had traveled those two years, they were expecting to go in and fear dominated them and the people failed to go in and take the land. And when they came, the second time, 38 years later, they came again to the same place and God told them that they were going to take the land now, but He said something very interesting to them. He said, it's going to happen slowly. It's going to be a slow go. You're going to have to fight one group after another after another. It's going to take a while, years actually, otherwise chaos will dominate. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy 7 to the people. Again, it's a do not fear passage. Do not be terrified for them. by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. They will not be allowed to, you will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. He says, the Lord your God's a great and awesome God, but He's not going to drive out these nations immediately, or just chaos is going to ensue in the land. The animals are going to be wild, you don't have the structure yet to govern the land, so we're going to do it piece by piece. It's an incredible word of encouragement to them. However, there's something even deeper that God did at this moment. It's recorded two chapters later in Deuteronomy 9 where God's still speaking to the people as they're about to go into the land and they're still scared. And now all the memories are coming back. Of, oh yeah, I remember when my parents were scared here 38 years ago. The Anakites are still here. Now God has just said He's going to drive out the people slowly, right? Little by little, going to take a long time. Listen to this, what He says in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you're now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess it. Dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly. Here's what he says. I've already told you how you're going to take the land. You can do it slowly, people group by people group. But the first one we're going to work on are the Anakites. And he said, they're going to go down fast. Why? Because that's the kind of God He is. He comes to him and He says, Look, I know these guys are eating your lunch. I'm going to take them out because I know they are the one thing in your life that you most need Me to immediately fight for you and take out for you. God knows you. He knows your fears. He knows what is crushing you and weighing you down. He knows what you can bear and what you have to receive some kind of immediate aid on. 
I love this picture of God. As God's got this plan, we're going to do it slowly, but, but this one, I got it. Now you may be here and you may be saying, yeah, I, I, that's cool, but my Anakites are still here. And I, I, I mean, I, I got lots of things, Mark, but if, if, if you want me to tell you the one that's eating my lunch, it's, it's this one. It's, it's this situation. It's this guy. It's this whatever. God hasn't taken my Anakites yet. Two things I'd say to you. If He hasn't, He doesn't feel they're as big to your situation as you do. Because He does do that. When He knew they had the Anakites and He knew they needed, this had to be done. He took them out. The second thing I would say to you is this. God hasn't removed them, but He is willing to strengthen you in a different way. God gives external strength. I will help you. Military, He fights for it. God also says, I will strengthen you from within. One of two ways, God will give you aid. Marin and I, a few years ago, went through the most painful, difficult season of our lives. So painful at times that we would have, I'm, I'm not being melodramatic, it was painful enough, I think, I'll speak for myself, I would have been glad to die. It was that painful to me. And there were allegations, there were, there were just things that were tremendously painful to me. There was betrayal, there was rumors, there were things, and there were things we couldn't control, and we just hung on to God God mercifully gave us a, a church leadership team and a whole church that stood with us and we got through. But, but in the midst of it, we, re, we, we had just had one thing and these were coming from people outside our church that knew and loved us and it was just saying, we just heard this is going on, this is being said by so-and-so and we had just about reached our, our, our limit of what we felt we could, we could handle, survive. And it was a morning together, we were there in our bedroom, and Marion had just gotten off the phone, and we had just gotten another message that just, it just appalled us. It just stunned, there was nothing we even knew to say. Just the sorrow, so much, so much. I can't overstate the weight of it. And when we were sitting there, thinking there's no way we can protect ourselves, there's no way we can, we can walk these things back, um, there's no way. Marianne gets um, Bible verses that come on her phone once a day, verse a day type thing. And all of a sudden, we're sitting there, and the phone pinged. And she looks down, and she reads the verse from Exodus where it says this. It's God speaking. I will fight for you. 
You've had those moments, right? Where God is God. Where God just says, Mark, I may not be taking all the Anakites out today, but I know you need to hear me. You need me. He will do that for you. He will strengthen you. He may not wipe out the end. Sometimes He will. You've had that. You've seen God just miraculous and you think, oh man, I, I didn't see. I, he's so creative the way He did. There's other times you're just holding on. He gives strong aid. And He says to you, don't give way to fear. I will fight for you in one way or another. The second thing he promises, and I'm going to try to keep rolling here. Um, the second thing he promises is steadfast love. So many passages. Again, I'm just giving you illustrations. Matthew 10, 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and one, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Luke 12, 6, 7, similar statement. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. God values you. Is His second message. He says, don't fear. Because of my steadfast love, of the way that I value you. It's because of your worth to God, he says. And he compares your worth to the value of the sparrow. And of course, you've probably heard this. You know, it's interesting that in the one passage he says, sparrows are sold uh, two for a penny. And then he says in the other passage, in the same, it's also Jesus talking, it says in the other one, five are sold for two pennies, which means one has no value. And it's a throw-in. But he still emphasizes to him that throw-in one is still a value to God. And he said, you're more value than all of them. We all struggle to find our value and our worth somewhere. To have the verdict of acceptability that we measure up. Now we all, of course, have different criteria of what acceptability is. The arena in which you seek your acceptability is probably not hard to find. Look where it bothers you that you are on the wrong side of the greater than, less than thing. You know the mathematical thing? You know, it looks like this. And you know which side you want to be on. You don't want to be with the arrow pointing to you because that means you're a less than the other side, you're a greater than. Now, quite frankly, all of us have things that we care that we're on the greater than side. If you can't stand to go to somebody's house because it's just perfect and your house feels, you never feel your house looks as bad as when you're at their house, that's probably saying that's pretty important to you. And it's hard. You don't want to be at that person's house. Why? Because the arrow is pointing your way. You're a less than. We all have that, right? We all have that verdict of acceptability. I've had years where I didn't want to go to pastor's conferences. I just want to be with everybody else and find all the great things God was doing with everybody else. And here I am, and I feel like I walk away and I think, oh man, I'm just a less than. We struggle with that. We, it can be in any arena. You can hear about people's kids or people's grandkids. 
God's talking about value here. And He says, I value you. You're of more worth to me, of more value to me than, than these other things in creation that I'm watching. I'm with them. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm checking every sparrow that's sitting on that telephone line. But he said, I'll tell you, I didn't choose them to be my child. I created them, but I chose you. I sent Jesus to get you. I opened your heart to the message of grace. My greatest pleasure is to see you thriving and content in my love. He says, you're of value to me. And he is delighted when he sees you putting all your hope and all your eggs in this one reality. God is crazy about you. Now, there's not a lot of people that really believe that. But I believe God's plan for our whole lives here is to learn more and more that it's true. It's hard for us to be crazy about us. So it's hard for us to embrace. But I think what God is saying, I don't want you to be afraid of stuff, of circumstances, of what you're going to lose, of what's going to happen, of how hard this is going to I want you to remember, I'm crazy about you. That I value you. Tim Keller from Redeemer Press says this. It's a gospel description of people. I've always liked it. You are more evil, self-centered, and corrupt than you ever dared believe. But you are more cherished, loved, and accepted than you ever dared hope. It's my opinion for believers that have really come to know Christ, I mean they're genuinely converted by the Spirit of God, that God's plan as we live our lives is that we would believe those last three realities, that we are more cherished, loved, and accepted than we ever dared hope. It's what frees us to be able to face the first part of that, that we're evil, self-centered, and corrupt than we ever dared believe. Now here's the second thing I want to say on this. God values you differently than you do. In Psalm 147, verse 10 and 11, God says this, and this was a verse that carried me through one of the darkest seasons of my life. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. He says, those who fear him who are stunned with awe by Him, are those who hope in His steadfast love. But look at what he says first. The Lord does not delight in your strengths. It says the Lord doesn't find any delight in the strength of the horse. He's talking about the war horse. I mean, these were the tanks of the day. These were the most powerful weaponry there was. And he says God doesn't find any, any, any delight in that. He says he doesn't find delight in the, in, the, in the legs of a man. Your strongest muscles are in your legs. He says he looks at you and says he looks at your strengths. And he says, I don't, I'm not delighted. That's, that's not what, what fires me up. So what is it that fires God up? What is it that he delights in? Here's what he delights in. I want to say this. That's what you delight in. It's what I delight in. I delight in my strengths. I love to show my strengths. I love, to, I love when the Lord uses my strengths. But the Lord says, Mark, that's not what I delight in. So God, what do you delight in? Here's what he says. 
He says, I delight in those who fear me, in those who hope in my steadfast love. I delight in my children that embrace the fact that when they don't feel strong, that when they do feel broken, when they do feel scared, that they lean into the fact that my greatest joy is when they're putting their hope not in their strengths, but in the fact that I am crazy about them and I am for them and I will be with them in their trouble. The beautiful gift of failure, which I do believe is a gift that God uses in our lives, is we come to see God's love for us when we feel most unlovely, most unworthy, most ineffective, when we feel most unlovely and God is crazy about us, we begin to realize, hey, this love thing is real. This God being for me is, is real. Years ago, when I was soon out of seminary, I was pastoring a little church in uh, Indiana, a little country church. And I had gone there um, and of course, I didn't know what I was doing. I was 26 years old, I think. And it was, a, it, was, it was a church that had split from another church in town. It was the county seat. And the one church had been there for over 100 years. And our church had split out and was meeting above a hardware store right in Main Street in the town square, the county seat. And the story was there was a guy that had been in, uh, in business for years and he had gone to Grace Seminary, which is where I went at the time after BBC, uh, Clark Summit University. And, and, I, um, and this guy had gone to Grace and he had graduated and for four years he had pastored the, lar- the, the, the mother church, the only church in town at the time. And conflict, 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 conflict surrounded him. And he finally... Um, the people weren't willing to do what he wanted them to do, so he actually took a third of the church out, and there was a big church split. Brothers were separated. Parents were separated from kids. It was, it was awful. And so I walked into this situation, and now this small group had broken off, and they had been with this, this pastor for three and a half years, and he had just left in a huff, angry, and now these people are there and they're bruised and bloodied and there's conflict with the mother church still and, and, and my friend had, was pastoring this thing and I was pastoring this thing and Buzz, my buddy, we, we said, we are in way over our head. Um, I'd probably still feel that way today. But, but I, so we got with a guy from our school, Dr. French, who knew every country church in the area, which everything was country churches there. And... and and he knew the church well. He knew the situation well. And we met with him for a while. And I'll never forget a statement he made. It, it, it has never left me. And he talked about this guy. And he said, and, and, and he actually had known the guy. He had known the situation. He, knows, he knew how it went, how it all played. And he said this, I don't think... Dell, I don't think Dell ever knew how much God loved him. I think he was driven by fear. If the people weren't going to follow him, 
and he had to be right. I think he took that with him to the little group I got involved in. God says, I can overcome your fear through my love. Steadfast love of God. I'm going to be faster on these last three. Number three, God's sovereign control, third card. This was a primary provision of God that helped David and others with their own fears. I'm just going to use a quick example from the Apostle Paul here. We're again. Acts 27, 23, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all that are sailing with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. David was tr- Paul was trusting in God's sovereignty that he was going to do what he had said he would do and that he had control of the circumstances. There's another situation there in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. This is, this is one I want to land on for a couple of minutes. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, don't be afraid. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the end of the third missionary journey. Paul has just returned to, to the shores of Judea for the first time after many years being gone. He has now returned and things are hot in Jerusalem. This is only a handful of years before the entire nation will rise up and actually be smashed, beginning in 66 A.D. Uh, by the Romans. I mean, things are tense. They hate Gentiles at this moment. And Paul shows up with eight associates who are all Gentiles, who are all now a part of the church, which are the Jesus group, the way. And there at the shore, before Paul even barely gets out of the boat, James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem are there to meet him and then saying, Paul, we, we, need to, we need to talk, buddy. And basically, Paul has come with a plan. He's come with this large offering he's gathered from all the Gentile churches for the last two years. And he's brought this and he's got a great vision. And his vision is, this is going to be our way of uniting the, the Gentile churches and the Jewish church. And we're going to do it by our giant thank you from the Gentile churches, because this famine in Jerusalem, this financial need, of course, the church is deeply struggling because they've been ostracized socially, economically. And so Paul brings this probably very significant gift. He's got eight bodyguards, and he's also, there are also guys, representatives of all of the churches. And so he comes, he's got a plan. I'm going to give this to the Jerusalem church, and I'm going to say, use it to take care of your people. And it is our way of saying, brothers, we're one with you. It's a very important moment for Paul. And you know what happened? They meet him there at the port. And this is what they said. Look, Paul, um, first of all, you're not good at this. But we don't want you to talk. We don't want you to preach in the marketplace. We just want you to sit on yourself, which he does for all the days that he's there. And no public preaching or anything until they attack him in the in the in the temple, and all he's doing is worshiping. And they said, and two things you can do for us. Number one, would you offer a, a sacrifice for yourself to show that, you know, you're not dissing the entire Jewish faith? And secondly, we have a couple of guys that want to fulfill a vow. It's very expensive to pay for that. Would you pay for them? Well, where's Paul going to get money to pay for that? There's only one place. He's got all this money, a chest full of money. And now he's being asked to contribute it to what? Something he doesn't even believe in. 
He's been telling everybody, we don't need to do offerings. We don't need to fulfill vows like this anymore. We've been freed from this. And now Paul, I mean, his whole plan is flipped on its head. Not only that, he's come with an entire vision that God has told him, Paul, I'm going to have you go to Rome and you're going to preach for me there. And Paul has written, he's written a letter and a couple of his letters, one in Acts and, 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 and in Romans, which he has written before this. And he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to come to Rome and then I'm going to go on to Spain. And he's saying, I'm waiting for the fourth missionary journey. It's the big one. It's, this is going to be the granddaddy of them all. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, this is going to be the movement of movements. I'm going to be in Rome, the center of the empire. I'm going to take it all the way to Spain. This is my plan. And the next thing Paul knows is he's thrown into a prison in Jerusalem. And then he spends, two, they take him up to Caesarea for two years. And then he's on a ship to Rome. He spends the next six years at least under lock and key. Things didn't go how he was expecting at all. But Paul was embracing the reality that God was still prominently directing him, sovereignly leading in these circumstances. God reminds Paul to not be afraid. Take courage. As you've testified to me in Jerusalem, you'll also testify me in Rome. It's not gonna, it didn't play out as you thought. But I'm still sovereignly working. Whatever's going on in your life right now is exactly what you would pray for if you knew everything that God knows. Looking on to Paul with all the plans he had, all the vision he had, all the purpose he had for his life and ministry, you would say, man, he is hitting one setback after another. There are no setbacks with God. If he is sovereign, he is at work. There are no setbacks that are going on in your church. You may say, well, you've got to be kidding. We're about to tank. Then God's got something bigger than you see. And he says, because I'm sovereign, don't be afraid. What is he saying? Stun yourself with my sovereignty. Stun yourself with my steadfast love. Stun yourself that I am the one that brings strong aid. Last two, and I really promise I will be quick. God is standing with you. The, of all the statements in Scripture where God says, do not fear, this is the one that is mentioned the most. Deuteronomy 31, Be strong and courageous, do not fear, or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. One of our pastors on our staff has just written a book. He has had a lifelong struggle with anxiety, OCD, other stuff. Um, real struggle. It has also made him incredibly um, hopeful to people that are struggling with things like worry, fears, uh, anxieties. And anxiety and fear tend to follow uh, similar tracks, even though fear is 
directed toward a specific danger. Anxiety is more a state of like a bunch of gnats going around your head. It's like everything seems out of control. But usually with anxiety, there are fears that are playing in. But he's written a book, and the book is entitled The Far Side of the Sea. It's taken from Psalm 139, and he's basically talking to the Christian community about where, how do we help those that are really struggling with anxiety? And, 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 we all struggle. We all struggle with worry. We all struggle with fear. But, but people that really have a propensity to labor with this, where does God fit into this? And his idea is that it is the presence of of God that means the most. And his whole book is talking about uh, on the far side of the sea. It's that psalm where it says, even if I'm on the far side of the sea, you'll be with me. And the book is powerful. I'm not oriented the same way this pastor is by personality, but I found it incredibly helpful for myself, but in particularly understanding those. But the whole messaging was, it is knowing that God is standing with you in the midst of suffering and pain. The most oft-repeated one, as I mentioned, is this one. It's in as famous a place as Psalm 23. I will fear no evil. Why? You're with me. You are with me. The last one, God's surrounding protection. John Genesis 15, 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not fear, Abram. I'm your shield. In Psalm 3, it says this, You, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Number of passages, God points to his surrounding care. He uses uh, visuals of this. I just put some there. The shield uh, that's used here in Psalm 3 in Genesis 15. Only he says he's a shield all the way around us, so he's not afraid, even the enemies are surrounding him, because he's shielded on every side. The hills surrounding Jerusalem is, Gen- is Psalms 25. God's hedge around Job. Jesus as the gate that is, that is lying there, as the gate. They can't get into the. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll replace that financially if necessary. Um, the. Um, that, that Jesus sits in the gate and nobody can get into the sheepfold because He's sitting there. I, I am the door of the sheep, He says. All picturing that God surrounds us with protection. In the situation I described earlier, which obviously I'm not going into a lot of details and don't need to, but when there were allegations coming my way and there were things there were things that just kept happening. This particular one meant the most to me. It was the first time in my life I actually identified with something in Job. You know, usually, who wants to compare themselves with Job? I mean, you just feel like a jerk. You know, you're a little pebble of suffering in his ocean. But it's the first time in my life I felt like God had cracked the protective shield around me. Because that's what happened with Job, right? I mean, he allowed the devil in a little bit. I mean, a lot for Job. but And through that season when I just felt, I, I don't where else can things come from? What else can come? 
That has had an immeasurable impact on my life and love for God. Because I realized that when that hedge was again closed and we knew the moment it happened, we both woke up the next morning where something that happened the night before we didn't talk about, the next morning we woke up and my wife looked over at me and she said, it's over. And I said, I know. I don't know how I know. I just know. that, And it was closed. It's never come back. Nothing. What that taught me is this. I don't think the devil hates me any less today than he did a few years ago during that time. There's only one difference. God isn't letting him get in. What that tells me is if it were not for the protecting hedge of God around our lives, we would be smoking toast. But He is. And right now there are things going on in your life, maybe, and you say, I can't handle any more. It's so frightening. It's so overwhelming. It's so exhausting. God says, remember this. If it's coming, I've let it come. I'll close it again. But right now, He's saying, trust Me that I am that sovereign working God. I am that surrounding protection. I have not closed it as much as you're used to Me closing it. I find tremendous encouragement to that in my frightening moments to realize, Lord, this is nothing compared to what could be. So you're closing it or you're allowing it to crack open. These five things God says to us are designed to awe us, to have us reflect on. That's why we did these things for our people, just to try to say, memorize, you know, think about these verses, process them. It says in Exodus 14, 21, when, the, when God opened the Red Sea and rescued the people from the the Egyptians, it says this statement. The people, this is the Israelites, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him. Exodus 14, 21. That is why God awes us. He shows us Himself in order that we will put our trust in Him. Maybe it will be the reality of His love, the reality of His strong aid, the reality of His surrounding protection, any of these things. But God's design is to have us live in awe that we might see His awe replace our fear. Lord, I love the privilege of preaching the Word knowing that I have no idea how You're applying these truths to anybody's life. But I'm asking that You would do so in Your own way. You know every person in this room. Lord, I pray that we would be awed by You. In Jesus' name, Amen. From where I'm standing, I see two options for us.